Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin Steven Spielberg. We're going to ruin Jews. <laughs> He's already ruined Jews. That's some true. Might argue. That's true. <laughs> and we're going to do it with our very special guest, Guy Branham, who insisted on coming on here to talk about the Fablemans, and we're so glad. I, I saw this movie in August at the Toronto Film Festival, and my first thought was, I want to talk to Maya and Rebecca about this <laughs> on the sauce. <laughs> I need to process this with them. Welcome, Guy. We're so glad to talk to you. I would never have watched The Fablemans if it weren't for your insistence on doing this. It's true. It's, well, it's true. It's so funny because it's a Spielberg movie and you love Spielberg, but it also is, you know, uh, a tired and turgid Oscar movie and you don't love those as much. <laughs> true, but sometimes those categories overlap. Yes. Fair. Fair. Pretty often, actually. I'm really part of the reason also that we're starting so late is because Guy came over here to record, which made everything technically kind of a disaster, but <laughs> he did it so he could bring me his homemade nochino, which is what I and Guy are both drinking right now. And it is so fucking good. And it just reminds me of how kind of watery the nochino was that I made, how it never got this full syrupy extraction. <laughs> so I am really enjoying that. And I'm very sad you're not drinking it. But what are you drinking, Rebecca? I am sad too. I am envious and wish I could be tasting that Nochino, which looks, I mean, it has a beautiful dark color to it. What What is the flavor profile? It's just, it's very vanilla-y and it's not oversweet, but it's just, oh, it's it's quite perfect. I mean, it's sweet. It like the the thing that's funny about it is it, at the end of the day, if you put it in soda water, it kind of tastes like Coca Cola. Uh, <laughs> and this year, I put too many orange peels in it, so uh, it was my first year putting orange peels, and I went a little too far. And so it is very. There's a lot of citrus going on this year. Strong disagree. I think it works <laughs> really, really well. Thank you. Well, I'm not drinking anything nearly so excited. I'm having a Campari and soda because I have to finish this extra bottle of Campari. I'm, I'm making my way. There's only <laughs> like, I don't know, a third of a bottle left. So I feel like progress has been made and I'm just going to keep on trucking with my Camparis. Do Camparis always make you feel like you are on the beach in Italy? Not on the beach. I... I don't get this Campari beach summer thing. Maya also was saying it's a summer thing, but it does kind of make me feel like I'm in Italy or at an Italian restaurant. <sighs> well, I think we have a lot to talk about. Before we get to our main topic, which I am excited to get to, and we do have a lot to talk about, I do want to thank some of our patrons. Uh, we, as a matter of policy, like to thank our patrons from Patreon for supporting this podcast and making this podcast possible. Uh, the problem is I've really fallen behind on doing so. And I have several members to thank that um, I have owed a mention to for months at this point. So I just want to thank Kirsten, Marvelous Patrick, Patrice, and Richard Silvera. Some of those names Listeners may recognize because we've shared feedback from some of those folks. We've 
responded to their feedback on episodes. Uh, so I want to thank all of them and all of our patrons. If you are interested in becoming a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And there's all kinds of membership levels. All members get to join us on the Sauce Speakeasy, which is our Discord channel, where you can share your thoughts on this episode, past episodes, what future episodes you'd like to hear, what you'd like us to ruin, or just whatever the hell you feel like talking about. And we would love to hear from you there. All right, guys. Okay, we're going to talk about the Fablemans. Spielberg, we're coming for you. We're coming for you, Steven. But before we jump into talking about this movie, I want to know, Guy, what was it about this movie that you felt like you had to hash it out with us? You just had to come on the sauce and dig into it. Because, Guy, you're very fancy and you have a lot of <laughs> other places to talk about your feelings about things. I mean, So it's why us? Like, it's the Spielberg of it all. And it's like the fact that he attempted to make a movie that was Jewy. And the fact that he attempted to make a movie that to some extent is queer. And those were like sensibilities. Like I feel like Tony Kushner wrote him two screenplays like doing like Yeoman's work on Munich and, and Lincoln so that he could then write something that was gay, um, that had queer energies to it. Um, and so I just wanted to process the weird ways what he was willing to include and not include, accept and not accept. I mean, the biggest question I have coming from the Fablemans is who was doing Kashrut continuity? Because every time Mitzi Fableman was holding out a pan, it sure was matzo brai. It sure was salami and eggs. And, you know, I, like there was something so interesting about the, his need to convey the building blocks of his childhood, but never explain them to never give like you know the fact that they were paper plate kosher is addressed so much in the film but it is never put in those terms they're not using the paper plates for kosher they're using the paper plates so mitzi doesn't have to clean up that's what they right. say but they use the paper plates to keep kosher because they kept kosher i mean i guess it served both functions yes and it's probably it easier than keeping functions. track of two uh, sets of plates but also there's this weird thing where, okay, oh shit, first of all, spoilers, spoilers, all the spoilers, oh, all the yeah. spoilers that have ever happened. Yeah. But then there's this weird way that it's, we're going to get into the Jewishness of it all, where it's also this way that his mom didn't fit and wasn't a proper wife and was this like outsider. And so it was like both of those things. It was a, her way of squaring keeping kosher with just not having to deal. Well, even just that first sequence of ours is the house without the lights. And then you go to mm -hmm. Hanukkah where you have the different lights that are ours. And then there is the film, which is him learning to play with and control light. And I feel like he puts all these things in the same place, but then he never makes the art between them. He never marries them. But then it also feels like he ha every time Jewishness shows up, it's like Jewish in air quotes. Yeah. It never feels Jewish. They never feel to me like a Jewish fit. Like the the whole his whole thing was he there's this quote where he says that his parents talked about the Holocaust all the time. It was always on my mind. 
I I was embarrassed because we were Orthodox Jews. Like there's a way that in, for instance, in a serious man, like it's like the Jewishness, you're soaking in it. (laughs) There's a way that in this movie, all this stuff is there, but you never feel like you're soaking in it at all. There's no, you don't feel it at all. You see it in this kind of stagey look, do it. It's like the set, but it doesn't, it's not actually felt. But then there, there are things as big as like uh, the Ukrainian folk song, which is just so like real and, and, and like sort of like bumps up against, you know, um, it being Michelle Williams and Paul Dano and a nice little French Canadian boy. Yeah, it's obvious that Spielberg has a still a lot of unresolved issues around being Jewish. <laughs> he he has said and been open about the fact that for a long time he was ashamed of being Jewish. As depicted in the movie, he depicts some of the teen bullying he received in high school, but whether it's due to bullying, which he also downplays in interviews, and it's like, oh, it didn't define my life, but also, I'm not really Jewish-Jewish, you know? <laughs> like, he he clearly has, at best, an ambivalent relationship about this family history and these traditions, and he is in no way interested in diving into that. That is not what this movie is about. And he he's allowing it to be present, the fact of their Jewishness to be present, because it plays into the plot at the end, you know, when he's in high school in California. But he doesn't show any interest in, like, exploring the character of Sammy's relationship to his Jewish traditions, what they mean to him, what they mean to the family. That's, that's just no, not but part it's, of the story. But, but even with that, there's this moment where, first of all, I thought it was amazing how, as a teenager, you literally see him lose about a half a foot of height when he moves to the white Aryan California. (laughs) Like he's never this little fucking shrimp when they're in Phoenix and all of a sudden he's a little shrimp. The kids in Phoenix are all the same height, but they're all Aryan gods in in California. In Marin or wherever he is. There's this one moment, like the moment where they're in this new school in California and his little sister is like, fuck this. And she pushes her way through the big tall kids, right? Mm-hmm. There are these, there may be like two or three moments of the way that the vibe is happening with the sisters and the way they joke with each other. But there's so little of it where it's like, it doesn't paint anything. So it feels kind of awkward and jammed in there. And you never get a sense of like, what's the back. It just feels very flat. But there's just something so interesting about the casting choices that were made that, um, you know, you've got Jeannie Berlin as the grandma. You got, um, uh, what's his name as the uncle? Um, uh, Rogan. Oh, uh, oh no, Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch and Seth Rogen, like that you have <laughs> these like iconic Jews who are giving you Jewiness. And then there is sort of like a resilient refusal to have the family participate in that, even with Mitzi being a screwball. I mean, Mitzi is a wonderful screwball. Totally. There's this way that Spielberg is like, these distant relatives are Jewish, but my parents aren't. Yeah. My parents right. were No, not my Jews. mom is Michelle fucking Williams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? That's like, right. If you've seen photos of Spielberg's mom, she's she's not Michelle Williams. She has a similar haircut, but well, you can see more of her resemblance to Stephen than you see in Michelle Williams. But I did love say. how much I did love how much Michelle Williams had 
clearly looked at film of Leah Spielberg and internalized and sort of like, you know, it is a performance that swings for the fences. And oh, yeah. In, I, I mean, she's doing a Judy Garland impression. Uh, like, I, I thought it was. Time and she commits to it. <laughs> I thought it was a little bit her Gwen Verdon from um, Verdon Fosse. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it's a performance sure. that is half elbows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, wait a second. So, if he's not really able to grapple with his Jewishness, can we just pause and take a moment saying, so what then is he grappling with? Because clearly the Jewishness is like there in this uneven way where he's still kind of, you can see here that he's still kind of ashamed of it, even as Kushner is like hammering it in there. And then it happens at these weird moments that then feel like, oh, is this a Jewish moment? It's like weird. So then what is he grappling with? Well, he's grappling with his parents' divorce. Yes. Uh, which is the defining moment, the defining event of his life and his and of his artistic output. Like half of his movies, at least, are about his parents' divorce in some way, shape or form. Um, a lot of it seems to be about what we were just talking about, about his mom, about her as this screwball character, this irrepressible, artistic uh, um, s- spirit who is being repressed by mid-century home and family wife duties. And from the earliest scenes, like there's a scene near the beginning where uh, the parents are in bed and Mitzi's uh, analyzing a piece of music, right? Because she's a former concert pianist and she is telling her husband about why this piece of music is so wonderful and how she would play it. And he's like, you should play again. And she's like, oh, that was three kids ago. And it's like, okay, you are telling us that you feel guilty that you ruined your mother's career as a concert pianist. And that's what you're going to be grappling with here. That scene also has that moment where instead of her kid needing to tell her or show her that he is obsessed with uh, this moment from The Greatest Show on Earth, because it scares him, she has insight into him. And there there are these flashes of greatness in this film. Like, it, mm-hmm. I very much think it is about Steven Spielberg trying to confront, like, the queerness of his own world. Like, the, the queerness of having a thruple for parents. He is perfectly happy for having a thruple for parents until he sees it from an outsider's eye. Like he is, you know, perfectly. And actually, and actually it is when the family relationship is the most successful. Yes. Right. Like, like that's, and there is a way that the big, the best moments are these moments. It's like this, this Oedipal realization, the way that his mom understands him um, and the way that, that his, big moment of adulthood or his um his primal moment right is mm-hmm. this understanding of her as an emotional and sexual person mm-hmm. through this like that's the big moment is this understanding of starting to see her truth of what she is and like the dad I think the, I think Rebecca and I really disagree about this um, because he, Spielberg apparently blamed his dad for the divorce for years, just didn't talk to his dad for like 15 years. And I feel like this is very much trying to like 
resolve his relationship with his father because he insists on his father's brilliance, his vision as a computer engineer. His father couldn't see the way that his son was actually just like him. It was just in a different way. Like there, the, the father's pain over the inability to really be with his mother. Like, there, yeah. There's still so much blame, even though so much of this movie is him like, Decades after the fact, finding out the truth that his mom left his dad because she was in love with the with another man, Uncle Benny, dad's best friend. Yeah, Uncle Benny. Um, so he's he's sort of rewriting the history of that. the The moment when he discovers that she is in love with Benny is um, an invention, right? Because he didn't know that as a child. He didn't know that until many years later. So he wants to reimagine this history where he can know her as a person, know her as a uh, feeling sexual being and all of that stuff. None of that actually happened in terms of what he was aware of and how he related to her. Well, I, I think what the movie, like the movie does blame his dad and it blames his dad for imparting to him the qualities that made him incapable of making this movie good. That like his father <laughs> right. was a workmanlike technician who did not see the emotions of people around him. And it's so hard for me to... Or or wait a second, his father saw them, but at a distance. Yes. Like yes. there are all of these moments where the dad is like, I see this woman I love over there having these feelings. I cannot be bop. Right. I cannot do anything the, about them. The so distant <laughs> father, you yeah. could say, is a theme, is a <laughs> motif in some of Spielberg's movie. You might, if you examine all of them, all of them. them. find some distant fathers in there. In all um, of yeah. Uh, but the blame here is he still blames i think he blames the father now not for the divorce but for not giving him that insight into his mom when he could have perhaps had the chance to bond with her as depicted in the movie so i just sensed a lot of resentment there the father in addition to being distant um he's the reason the mom is unhappy i just think there's a way that spielberg cannot give enough character to the character of Sammy to allow him to have real moments like that. He, his need to make like uh, a cute little everyman, a seeing eye who is experiencing great things, but not a character is so frustrating. You know, it's like, it makes me want to go back and watch ET and was like, is Elliot this much of a cipher? That's what I was just going to ask. Describe the character of Elliot to me in three words that don't refer to his age or appearance. <laughs> right. Lonely. Mm, that's an emotion, not really a character trait, but okay. Um, Gertie's brother. <laughs> I did it in two. <laughs> yeah, that's, I should have said relationships. You can't include relationships. Well, but isn't that interesting? And it seems like the moments that are the most alive are when he's like a Boy Scout standing next to the projector, having everybody else watch this thing. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. there are these moments where it's like, oh, my God, you're so close to real insight, Stephen. So close. Right. And in the ways that it's not happening we see how close you, like, we see the gap that is your limitation He's, when we see, like... This is the moment when I force you guys to listen to me talk about Barry Levinson's Avalon for under two minutes. Okay. Which is, 
Barry Levinson after Rain Man uh, got to, got his blank check, got to make whatever movie he wanted, and he made a movie about immigrant Jews in the United States, sort of uh, 1914 to 1960. And sort of the key moment in it is little boys playing with firecrackers in a plane, trying to recreate something they had seen in a movie, and then thinking that they burned down their father's electronics store. And it is a movie about, uh, the wonderful thing about it, he casts all Gentiles as his main Jewish characters, even though they are explicitly Jewish, and they center it all around Thanksgiving and Fourth of July, the holidays that aren't religious. So smart. But it essentially is a movie that is like, while all of my contemporaries were making movies about shit blowing up, our families fell apart and became only focused on shit blowing up and there's just something so funny to me that this person made a much more successful version of the Fablemans 30 years beforehand and no one went and saw it <laughs> and we're all sort of lining up to high five Steven Spielberg for trying and a little bit failing <laughs> okay okay so then so then this I think takes us into the next section uh, okay one last thing before we move on to the next section Regarding the mom and this reimagining of his history, the sort of fantasizing about mm -hmm. his past and imagining that he understood her back then, a, a major element of the film is this idea that um, Mitzi articulates that, that Sam is like her, right? She's the artistic one and he is like her. And I think he is very much saying that he got many of his qualities from his father and that it's the mix of the two and... Yes, we've all seen Close Encounters where uh, they communicate with the aliens through music made by computers. <laughs> yeah, but um, the, um, the scene with the uncle, I think, connects to this positioning of himself as like to his mom, uh, of a piece with his mom. The, the uncle, uh, in real life, apparently, this uncle, like, you know, visited once and his accent was so thick, Stephen says he couldn't even really understand what the guy was saying. So this is a pretty fictionalized account. He's just made up this idea, although I do believe he was in the circus. Um, but he's made up this conversation. What does the uncle tell him in the conversation? Uh, you're an artist and it's going to tear your family apart. Yes. It's going to... Because you're going to care more about your movies than you even... You don't love your family as imagine, much as you love your movies. Imagine right. if that little postscript... Imagine if that little postscript that we got after the Beach movie wasn't about John Ford, but was about his breakup with Amy Watson. With, Amy, with yeah. Amy Irving? Yes. yes. Ah, yeah. Like, well. imagine if he had in some way confronted the messiness of his own life. But this is a man who likes things clean. Well, exactly. So the whole scene, so he has to place this thing where look at this uncle telling me that this is my lineage when what we're seeing from the actual movie is that clearly he's his father's son. Way more right, than he's his right, mother's son. Right. But what the uncle is telling him is actually about the mother. It's not about Sam oh. slash Stephen. His uncle is telling him your mother's artistic need for creative expression is going to tear this family apart. I mean, it's interesting that he is positioning artistic genius as being incompatible with relationships. It's like a classic, you know, the male genius thing that we had an episode about ages ago. We've talked about repeatedly this idea that, oh, you just, you know, you're Edward Scissorhands. You're, you have to hurt people. You don't mean to, but it's 
you know, you're an artist. And it's so odd that he puts that seed in the movie when there's nothing really in the movie to indicate that Sam is hurting anyone around him. Uh, One of the things I like most about this movie is that it shows a group of well-mannered people being nice to each other and still tearing each other apart. Like that Mm. everyone really is nice and well-intentioned, but still manages to make each other unhappy is family. See, so fundamentally it's very Jewish. (laughs) So we're talking about what he's grappling with. But what I want to talk about is what does he think that he's doing by grappling with this? Because what he's saying is, this is what made me an artist. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how I became an artist. Like, I am an artist because I am, and his mother's insight, he wants control over it. Cinema is how I control pain and life. Like that is what he's trying to say. Yes. So what what strikes me the most about this aspect of the film, this sort of autobiographical, uh, not so much all of this, I'm, I'm trying to work through my anger at my father and my guilt around my mother, but, but the actual, like, this is about me. Here's what you audience can learn about me as an artist is that there's nothing. There's like no there there. Mm -hmm. There's no um, depiction of any kind of creative impulse. He is depicted as driven to make movies. Like that's very important to this movie. He wants you to know that he's... He's full and of he's tricks. And he's full of tricks. He loves and tricks. he wants the most updated machine always. Again, <laughs> yes, he is yes. his father. Like, could I have this really expensive editing thing? Right, right. I mean, like, his attraction to his, his like, Christian girlfriend is, like, doubled when he realizes that her father that her has a very good camera. dad has an Aeroflex. <laughs> yeah, he has an Aeroflex yeah. camera that she's willing to lend. Right, right. Um. But but the very opening of it is, of course, the greatest show on earth, right? He sees this train crash sequence. He's terrified by it. And this is the genesis of his life and career as a filmmaker. And why? Because through filming it, he can feel like he has control over it. And it's not control over the emotion like you might think. This is the key distinction here. It's not saying that that cinema is a way that we can work through our emotions about things, that we can face our emotions and work through them. That's not what cinema is about in this case. Cinema is about controlling the story. You write the story, you write the reality that people see and believe. It's about the power of being a storyteller. And and that's why... (laughs) that's why I love this film. And that's why I love the weird second half that isn't about what the first half was about. Like I would have loved a resolution that was about this family and those relationships. We weren't going to get that, but that the second half like centers on him creating a film that like transmutes the world around him. And the fact that Steven Spielberg, after making all of these movies that did not get respect for being 
family fair that he creates a hero in his beach movie and he turns that bully into a hero, I thought was magnificent and gay and witchy. And I loved, I would have loved if it could have just sit in some way in that world of, I have this strange power now. What, like, what a burden of a power, you know? I want to note this observation. He starts making films so that he can control the fear about the train crash sequence. When film shows him something true, his mom's relationship with Benny, love for Benny, that there's something there, when he sees the reality of that, he stops wanting to make movies. He decides he doesn't want any part of it anymore. I do not want this power. Yes, I break I, my staff. No, it's yes. not the power. It's the no, powerlessness. I, no, but I like. But I think it is the power. I think it is him being frightened of the power to have insight to look into souls. He does not want to peer into souls. No, he does not want to peer into souls. He doesn't want to peer into souls. That's what scares him. And he doesn't pick up a camera again until ditch day when he's drawn in by the promise of this great technology of this superior camera right so that's the, the engineer in him the dad's influence and what does he do he's been bullied by these anti-semitic aryan blonde gods and so you know one of them he turns into a clown in the film but the other one he Make basically the movie he makes is Triumph of the Will. I mean, yes, like it's Olympia. I think the primary reason yeah. I wanted to talk to the two of you was to everyone else. I have to say he made Triumph of the Will, but to the two of you, I can say yes, he, it's Olympia. He, yeah. he made Olympia. He made a Lenny Riefenstahl movie, and that's his answer to anti-Semitism. How could I not like? I want to love this movie. But I want to I love this movie. Great. His answer, like you said, his answer to anti-Semitism is to make a Lenny Riefenstahl movie. It's a victory for him in, in that the jock who's being depicted recognizes who is in control here. Who has the power? It's not me, the tall, athletic guy who can beat you up or whatever, the popular guy. That looks like I have power. You made me look like I have all the power, and I don't. You have it because you can make me look that way or you can take that away or you can make reality whatever you want it to be. It is an act of witchcraft. And that's where the movie is landing on cinema is witchcraft. It's not an artistic expression. It's not a creative expression. It's uh, it's a trick. <laughs> it's a trick. And it is a means of control and manipulation. I mean, that's going to be the biggest criticism of Spielberg movies you'll ever see, right? Is that they're manipulative. But I, and he's I love, owning that. But, but also, but, but, but it's also this thing where, like, I'm dealing with anti Semitism by making a Lenny Riefenstahl movie. It's like, isn't that kind of the problem with Steven Spielberg in a nutshell? I mean, that's like, that's kind of like, yeah, that's a fucking problem. Yeah. Like, that's the problem. That's that. And, mean, and yet there's no insight. Munich sure does make all those Palestinian deaths go down easy, don't it? Oh, mm, mm, tasty, tasty. <laughs> Munich, I took my Israeli parents to see Munich and it was like, we were all just like, oh, this sucks. Like, oh God. Mm. Anyway, we're not going to talk about this. We don't have to talk about music. No, we right don't have now. to talk about that. I think it's really interesting. I'm not saying it's good, good filmmaking or 
good messaging, but it's it's an interesting phenomenon to see him have the climax of the film be, look, I can manipulate people with film. Film is power. Cinema is power. If you are the one behind the camera making the movie, also you are now watching a movie where I am using the power of the cinema to completely rewrite my own history and make it into something that I would but prefer it to have we been. We are also seeing in him doing that the way that he's failing because he's basically showing us, whether he knows it or not, that he is not his mother. He is his robot father. <laughs> so like that's also that like he isn't doing what he thinks he's doing or maybe he does think he's doing, but like that's not what I'm seeing. I like, love that at least he made a movie where he said, I make heroes on film. So there will be heroes. After having to see all of his extremely successful movies that do that, in, in a world of art movies that in the same year that Dolly de Leon um, became the greatest anti-hero film has ever seen um, in, uh, in Triangle of Sadness, that you had somebody just sort of saying, I make there be good guys. There should be good guys in this world. I liked that he came close to writing an essay in his own defense. <laughs> but that's the thing is that he thinks he is, but you're like, ah, and, and that's, I'm sorry, we have to move on to what we think about this. I think we are absolutely in the <laughs> moment of what we think about this. Okay. So here's the thing. As I was watching this movie, I was texting Rebecca and Guy, and I was saying that like, the thing about Spielberg is that he has these moments in his films that are so extraordinary as a filmmaker that are plotched into trite, stagey pablum. And I'm thinking in this movie of the moment where he realizes through looking, through shifting his focus to the different parts of his home film, that he realizes as he's editing this that his mother is having an affair. It is one of the most extraordinary sequences where he's going back and forth between and this mother's gestures and him all of a sudden his mother's eroticism emerging in these tiny gestures that he's manipulating back and forth. It's so good. And then the moment of him putting his mother into the closet to watch this thing while he waits outside this unbelievable sequence of Oedipal understanding of his mother's erotic power of this inner life as revealed through this gestural physical behavior that he captures on film. Fucking amazing. In the middle of this film that is otherwise feels like fucking cardboard. It feels like the false fronts in a Western. It is so fucking just stagey and weird and like bore and just kind of and it reminds me of the the greatest the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan on Omaha Beach is one of the greatest filmmaking moments of the past 50 years it is all shot in POV but then the second you get into somebody's POV the character whose POV it is gets killed it is one of the most extraordinary avant-garde pieces of filmmaking and then it opens one of the most hack schmackty fucking trite fucking pieces of shit for the next two hours and that's what i'm left with this 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 shining avant-garde very few filmmakers have gotten to have the experience to make something that good and yet it is always 
stuck in the structure of the most boring, trite shit. Like that use of the that use of the closet that you mentioned really is the essence of what I love about this movie is that it is like it's Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. It's the epistemology of the closet. It's what can be said and what can't be said. What can you acknowledge and not acknowledge? And the fact that Tony Kushner, like the best in the game when it comes to faggot writing, like truly is applying these tools to this story in a way that's really interesting. What stuns me is that the person who made poetry with CGI dinosaurs, the person who made that bike soar across the sky, that he never makes the magic here, that Sammy never gets swept away. Like, I I don't understand why he was not able to pull us into this family like he pulls us into other families, but at the end of the day, it's Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. It's not being able to say the things that are truest to you. It is interesting also that Spielberg, yes, he's known, it's not just the soaring moments. It's it's the emotional moments. His movies are thought of as being uh, schmaltzy. You know, he, he makes movies that, are, that will make you cry. E.T. will make you cry. And it's not because there's a bike going in front of the moon, which was cool. It's because of the relationships. He he just isn't capable, I think, of looking at his own family. And he, he's like, a kind, it's kind of a just the facts, ma'am, retelling of a lot of his life, except the parts that aren't. And I think it's really interesting that the part that Maya says stood out to her as actually having... A, a, a sort of transcendent moment with a moment where he's seeing his mom's small gestures, understanding that his mom's having an affair, puts his mom in the closet to watch it. All of that stuff is the stuff that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that it's all the stuff that did happen that it just is like anchoring him to earth in this way that just makes everything land with a thud uh, he he's just being very kind of literal about things. It's this like, I made I made my sister pretend to be a mummy when she was six so I could film it. Let's show that. Let me show this family dinner we had. And it's just like, oh, well, that really that's happened. that's the thing. His desire to control his family history squeezes the life out of so much of it. And then like- no, but that's, I'm saying the opposite of that. It's the moment where he wants to control it that it has life. The moments where he's just showing you what happened to the best of his recollection are the dull ones. But, but I think that is also an act of control because it is trying to use like manipulative boredom. It's trying to use manipulative, cute little, weren't we just regular people? Weren't we just regular people? Like he never gets at, he so rarely gets at the honesty and just when it gets at like, she dressed me up as a mummy. I did such cute things. Also, I need us to acknowledge that one of his sisters wrote big. And yeah. that is in no way, like... I didn't know that. She never gets to have a moment of even a wink that says, this person had greatness too. <laughs> no, the three sisters are like this chorus where they are all exist as a single unit and it's not like they have their own personalities like really at all except for the one moment where she pushes her way through or whatever or like the way that they are he's like like okay the scene 
where his gra- where his grandmother dies, where his mother's mother dies. Mm-hmm. In terms of the staging of that, his father is watching the heart monitor because that's the computer. <laughs> his sisters are in a cluster in the back. He his mother is lying with her mother and all he watches is the pulse on his grandmother's neck as it stops because mm-hmm. he's a computer like that <laughs> scene was set up in such it that was so interesting i feel like where you're like oh well that's deliberate boredom to set us up for it being this one thing and then it's this other thing i feel like it's not working like i don't feel like it yeah. works yeah. i don't think there's deliberate boredom because i feel like the entire plot of the movie the thing that is a constant throughout the movie is that the I think what you once called manic pixie dream mom. Guys. Yes. That that she is she she feels so much. She she has so much. She feels so hard and and she's artistic and she's weird and she's flighty and she's different and quirky and it's like I mean I don't think there's a moment where you're supposed to be like this is just a regular family doing regular family things. No, but I feel like he I feel like he periodically ties himself to the ground like there are there are instincts at odds here there is the instinct to make his mom the larger than life creature that she is and then there is the instinct to say look at that cute little thing i did look at that cute little trick i knew like um that there is the the tension between making art which he wants to do and revealing yourself which he does not want to do i'm just remembering the very first moment of the movie, they're about to go in to see The Greatest Show on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And the father explains to him technically yes. how film That's works. Right. He yes. talks to him about persistence of vision That's right. and the frame rate. As a viewer, I was like, I don't want to say charmed by that, but I was very intrigued by that. Like starting your movie with a like, you are being fooled into believing an <laughs> illusion of movement right yes. now. Right yes. now, that is what is happening. But also, it's very much like all of this stuff about the mother bringing home monkeys and you're an artist like me and I needed to play piano, but I had to have babies. It's all there, but it, it really starts and ends with the like engineer father being like, That's right. this is technologically how film works. And that he can't, and that his father... That, that's the other thing, back to the weird Jewish staginess where it's like, we're Jewish, but he can't actually create a Jewish space, yeah. I feel, at all. Like, he has yeah. all the Jewish things, but it's not a Jewish <laughs> space ever, even though he grew up clearly in a very richly Jewish space that was soaking in it. But he's like, he cannot deal even to this very fucking moment with that. But then the weird thing about how in this final scene where his father's encouragement of him is that final push out the door that gets him to meet John Ford, right? It's not him with his mom and Mm -hmm. his mom saying, Mm -hmm. go live the dream. His dad is like, you are like me, go live the dream. Because he's basically saying he is his father. And the opening of that scene, weirdly, the camera hangs on like, the father's menorah in this apartment. Like there's this weird way where they (laughs) see Jewish stuff. And you're like, And again, it's the Jewish in air quotes. So it's like, it's so bizarre. It is so fucking weird. I'm just contextualizing this because now they live in LA and he has been writing letters 
to people in the industry and he's trying to get a foot in the door and he's about to go talk to someone who works in TV and then get to talk to John Ford. The guy who created Hogan's Heroes who also produced The Godfather in that miniseries this year. (laughs) Yeah, and was actually like his second cousin or something. It wasn't just somebody he randomly wrote a letter to, but whatever. Um, But there is something about like where and how does he feel it's necessary or important to point out their Judaism, to depict their Judaism. And it's like somehow in that moment, it's like I'm in Hollywood now and I'm about to really be in Hollywood and we're Jewish. (laughs) Like, no, but it's also, but it's also, it's also the anxiety attack scene. And that's the, Mm -hmm. the thing Mm -hmm. is that I I kept thinking I might have felt very differently about this movie. If the things that had happened after the end of the beach, triumph of the will. Yes had been in some way darker or more ambiguous or just more complex. And I had completely forgotten that there's this thing about anxiety attacks that we go through, but it's just so unrelated to anything else. It does not feel like it is continuing anything. And then we get this cartoonish sequence of a straight boy handing the baton to a straight boy so that they can continue the path of making pictures. Right. Yeah. Right. I think it's it is wonderful though that he has David Lynch who is the fucking weirdest play yeah. John Ford mm-hmm. like there was mm-hmm. that that was personally very tasty cuz you were like David Lynch who does things that you never would ever do Mr. Spielberg um but there's this but maybe they're both inheritors of John Ford whatever but then there's that meta moment that we end with where John Ford is like the horizon goes here or there and that's interesting and it's not in the middle and then he leaves the office and you have this meta moment of Spielberg putting the horizon in the middle and saying like but yes it is interesting and like that's Steven Spielberg I'm gonna make basic shit interesting I mean, like, I thought it it was interesting after this film to say, you either make things that are extremely hopeful or extremely dire, you know, and sort Mm -hmm. of like, like, confronting that with that final moment of also, but also... Like, look, I watched it in a room where Steven Spielberg was there and everybody was just laughing and clapping because good for you and your tricks, you know? Well, I I thought it was very interesting that after he leaves the meeting with John Ford and supposedly, like, according to his recollection, that is exactly what happened. Uh, Steven Spielberg claims the scene played out exactly like that in real (laughs) life. But he leaves and, of course, the camera tilts a little in this weird meta moment. The only, well... The only, like, explicitly meta moment, though, I'd argue there's another moment that's kind of. But, like, the final message, like, the last note you're sort of left on is, I'm manipulating you. Mm -hmm. I'm in control of the camera. I'm going to show you what I want to show you. That makes me like the movie so much more. Yeah. I I, I kind of respect it The thing is, I feel like, but I would have liked it more if he was doing that and it was a better movie. Do you (laughs) know what I mean? Sure. Like, like... The, like have those meta moments where I'm manipulating you, but then really go for it. Like really, right, really right. go for it and really have your hands on it. But I feel like he's still so crippled by this avoidance of like facing things that are important mm-hmm. that it doesn't like, like it didn't take me. I don't feel like I was 
taken, transported, Mm -hmm. manipulated, taken, like turned to this other. I wasn't. So then when he does those tricks, I'm like, yeah, but to what end, my friend? I'm somebody who will watch the color purple just so I can have a good cry. Like I have so much respect. It's not like he doesn't know the tricks. It's not like he can't do it. And it's not like I as a viewer don't enjoy and sometimes feel very grateful to get to have access to those tricks like give it to me but then to have this thing where I'm like oh so what yeah he wants to make a movie that is in many ways about the power and control that a filmmaker has to to manipulate people to control reality and yet he doesn't he only is doing that for himself in the movie He's perhaps <laughs> manipulating himself and his own emotions. He's working through something, but as an audience, it's hard to be particularly moved by anything but that happens. The thing is, is he would have to know himself so much better to be able mm-hmm. to make a movie that was self-aware about its manipulation. I mean, that would be so good, but it would require so much more therapy than he's gone through. Ab-sa-fucking-lutely. And that's why I'm like, I would have rather you dealt with your feelings about your parents by making another movie about aliens. You know? Like, just make some more aliens. I'll take those aliens. Like, let's do that. No, he's done such a good job with those. I just want to note, like, I I was looking at all of the films he's made, and it's like, how many of these can I say are in some way about divorced parents, distant fathers, seeking your distant father in the stars, you know, that kind of thing. Do any of them but the color purple ever say this thing that everyone says is bad might be good? Like the color purple ends with a rejection of heteronormative marriage. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And But this movie, it feels like it takes all the strength he has to be able to say... My my parents had a weird relationship, and maybe that's okay. You know, my parents mm-hmm. were in a throuple. Maybe that's okay. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, that the throuple thing, like, like it's kind of there, but not enough. That idea of like when it's a throuple is when the family mm-hmm. is clicking and humming and together, and like everything's working. And then it falls apart because they can't be together. There's something so beautiful about introducing Uncle Benny as your dad's best friend. Because it really does help you see it from the angle where everyone is getting stuff out of this. Everyone enjoys Uncle Benny. They're all having a good time. But is there anyone watching it who needed the scene with him watching the footage to know? Right. Like, he he telegraphs it from the first scene that Benny appears. Like, it's totally obvious what's going on there's also this okay there's this amazing piece of video art it's called it's by this guy named martin arnold and it's called alone life wastes andy hardy and it's this extraordinary piece of video art where he takes shitty this shitty like mickey rooney judy garland films Mm -hmm. and manipulates them moving them backwards and forwards in this way that like cracks open the the insane Freudian id powers that are underneath this total piece of trite trash. And the opening sequence is like one of the greatest things. And I will put it on the Patreon. I'll put a link to it on the Patreon where Mickey Rooney comes up behind his mom and kisses her on the cheek. And she's like, ooh, and it's like this throwaway moment. 
But then he slows down and rotates it back and forward. He did it with optical printing so that it's like this totally erotic, edible moment. <laughs> and it's amazing. And I feel like – and it's it's like one of the greatest pieces of video art. I teach it all the time. But I feel like that was – like like what if it was a moment – what if it was a whole hour and a half of just Spielberg – being the greatest manipulator of film ever and mm -hmm. it's not it's not we're sitting there like oh for those few moments where you're like oh yes you're very good at this <laughs> making films thing and it's so it's it's oh it's very disappointing i mean i think you're being a little hard on it like it wasn't great but like it ha it was humorous there was there was funny moments the whole thing with the Christian girlfriend was very cute and funny. You know what's interesting about the Christian girlfriend is that the camera loves the other goyish girl that the Triumph of the Will guy gets in the end so much more. Oh, And no, I was yes. like, that was so no. interesting well, where the, the camera hangs on her and yet she's not the one who's part of this erotic but, life of the hero. I don't know. It's very No, but the thing is, is to me, again, that is so much of the queerness is that like this relationship of envy to those two boys of they, what they have is better than mine. Like an obsession with them, an obsession with their, like with the good one's girlfriend. If only it could have pulled it open a little bit more. And there really were like the Douglas Serkey moments on um, the, the, the camping trip. The dancing moments. Yes, like there were so many things about it that were like technically interesting and i just didn't understand why he couldn't sweep me away i i liked the moment where he was um working with the actor yeah in his like teenage boy scout film and he he is so successful in getting this young actor to uh imagine <laughs> the scene that he's supposed to be in. It was cute. It was like, wow, you think actors are dumb. No, but also that both of these boys, the only way they can ever have any emotions together mm. is through this moment of trying to be in this make pretend moment because you see that as he's trying to learn how to describe this, he's getting yeah. teary and emotional too. And you're like, oh, this is the only way boys can have feelings with each other. Right. And it's in the context of making a movie about war. And all of his movies are like Westerns, war films. Everything he's doing is based on other movies he's seen. Nothing that we see him doing is based on his life except the camping film. And then, of course, the Ditch Day film. No, but the Ditch Day film is a beach movie. The Ditch Day film is an Annette Funicello movie. Totally. Exactly. It's totally genre. Yeah. It's 100% exactly. genre. And maybe that's the other thing. Like, what's the genre of this movie? Like, put it in a shape. Like, that's you would have to, again, have that kind of self-awareness to say, I'm going to tell my family story through this genre. And that's how I get to something. The most important character disappears halfway through the movie. And that's not a like a thing in the movie that's not like something that informs the movie but it's like the the most interesting vibrant character just goes away are you talking about benny no i'm talking about mitzi i mean i guess mitzi shows up for like she doesn't 
go away I mean, halfway through the movie. No, when they move, when they move, and all of a sudden she's a mess. When they move, like, the story becomes about his bullying. About him. Uh, and it, it moves yeah, it to his. Yeah, it does become more about him, yeah. for sure. For sure. And, like, there is the. There's the one conversation that they have in the kitchen, but like I think ever like the her hitting him sequence happens when they are still in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, but doesn't she buy a monkey after they get to California? The monkey bought the monkey purchase is in the new place, and that's like her one moment. And, and the then big there's the fight sequence. where she says, "I started therapy." Yes, but I would say like that is maybe plot. Like the monkey thing doesn't relate to the plot in any way. Um, it is a kooky moment. Um, well, but then there's the sequence where they go to the new house. Yeah. And you're seeing them in the new house through the filming of it, which is how you see the ways that her dad is finally like, I lay this all at your feet. And she's like, actually, I figure out I'm done. <laughs> it's, it's all, everything after they moved to California is about her intensifying unhappiness, yeah. her depression. Uh, it's, it's real. it gets into that quite a bit. I was, I will say, the one other almost meta moment is the scene where the father is telling, or the parents are telling the kids about the divorce. And it's shot in sort of handheld. Mm -hmm. And it's intercut. You see the girls crying, asking why. And it's sort of intercut with reaction shots of Sam, who appears to be watching everyone. Maybe he's like sitting in another part of the room or on the stairs or something. And he's just sort of separate from his family watching this stuff as it's happening. And then at near the very end of the scene, you see, uh, I think perhaps reflected in a mirror, though I could be wrong about that, but you see him with his camera that he has been shooting this the whole time. And the reaction shots we've been seeing of him are not him in that moment being there with his family, they're him watching his footage, mm-hmm. which is the handheld shit we've been seeing. I know, but then why didn't it come, like the whole thing, why didn't it come together as a... Uh. It, yes, it's like, why didn't this movie end with him being able to be hugged? You know, why didn't this movie end with him being in his family? He's saying something there, right? He's, yeah. he's saying something about his separation from his family, about his seeing everything through the lens. About him being a robot. Maybe, maybe. There's definitely a way that he's showing you that he can only process things yeah. through making a film about it. And that's literally what he's doing. It's not about making something to manipulate you. It's about making something that he needs to make to help him process some things. And he has such a big fucking Hollywood but, metaphorical dick that he can do it. But also, but also, maybe that's genius. Like, <laughs> isn't there something deeply, like, revealing about making not the movie that audiences need, but the movie that I need? Okay, here's the thing. So, the speaking of David Lynch, so I, I think I've talked about this on the show before. When I had, uh, when I had, COVID the first time, I used it to watch Twin Peaks The Return, like all fucking 18 hours of it, because I had no nothing else to do, nowhere else to go. And I'm like, this is, and it was a waste. It was really a waste of those 18 hours. There are many other things that were much more worthwhile that I should have watched. However, throughout those 18 hours, there were so many moments where I was like, this fucking sucks. But you know what? Good on you, David Lynch, for being this self-indulgent. And as an artist, I was very inspired by that. There is a way that like when you see artists being like, 
I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do this. That for me, it's, um, it's very inspiring. It's a good reminder. It's very bracing. And, and so even though I struggled through those 18 hours, there's this one subplot where I'm like, shoot me in the face, which was apparently <laughs> another script Lynch never got to make that he shoehorned into it so that he could make it while he had Showtime money. I didn't feel like that. It, there wasn't even a part of me that's like, you know what? This is totally self-indulgent. Good on you, Stevie. Like, it didn't do that no. at all. No, there's nothing like there's no merit to it uh, other than we should all have such uh, artistic courage, right? <laughs> we should all just make what we want to make and not give a shit. But yeah, it's a flex. It's like, I'm fucking Steven Spielberg and I want to make a self-indulgent movie about my own fucking life. That sucks. And you're all going to watch it. you're all going to watch it and you're going to nominate me for Oscars and shit because who cares? Like there's not actually anything that interesting about me or my life, but you're all going to watch it. Yeah, it's a flex. It's a flex, but with I thought without the artistic courage. That's the thing. Lynch, at least you're like, fuck. It's a it's an all craft flex. But the craft wasn't It's not about craft and it's not about art. It's about the flex. It's about I've earned this. I've done enough fucking art. I've done I've done all the movies you guys loved. Now I get to make one that's just like totally self-indulgent. And you're gonna act like it's great because I've earned it. It doesn't make it a good movie by any stretch. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it, it, you got to kind of admire the flex. I I feel like if that's his flex, it shows his limitations in a very profound way. If that's him flexing, I'm like, oh. Lydia, mm. Lydia Tarr is a more fully fleshed human being than Steven Spielberg. <laughs> All right, that's our next episode. <laughs> Guy, thank you so much for making us do this. Thank you so much for, like, I feel bad for railroading your podcast to let me have no. the conversation I wanted to have, but this is precisely what I wanted. <laughs> I I actually feel like our, we this is what we are here for, and I would like to remind our listeners, this is what we are here for for you as well. Patreon.com slash sauce podcast. Join our discord. Being railroaded into things is how we've come to some of our greatest episodes. It's true. Like, it's true. It's always when people are like, I need you to solve this for me right now. That's always when the greatest episodes happen. So there is no, no apologizing for that. We are here for that. Yes. So listeners, please do reach out and let us know what you would like us to ruin. Um, you can do it on the Discord, as Maya said, if you join our Patreon. You can also email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on all the socials as at saucepodcast. Guy, where can everyone find you? I am at Guy Branham across all social media. Also, watch Platonic on Apple Plus and History of the World Part 2 on Hulu. Well, I look forward to watching both of those. And then, Rebecca, where can they find you? You can find me on all the various platforms as at Gynostar. And you can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz. Guy, thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I can't thank you for forcing me to watch The Fablements, but it was a good conversation. I love both of you very much. Thank you for being in my life. Adios, amigas. Adios, amigas.